Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, November 2nd, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. And in the second edition of Advice Corner with Chris Evangelista, we're going to get a little bit of parenting advice. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Writers, Huai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. You excited for Advice Corner? I am. I'm a little nervous. I don't want to give out bad advice. I'm excited. This is my first time witnessing Advice Corner in person, so it's a momentous occasion. Okay, well, we will get to that after the news. Uh, let's start off with the, the news that we might actually have the titles for all the Avatar sequels. HT, could this be true? Well, according to a report from the BBC News, this might be true. So BBC News reports that it has seen documentation containing plans for the future of the Avatar franchise that references four specific projects. They go by the title Avatar, The Way of the Water, Avatar, The Siege Bearer, Avatar, The Tolkien Writer, and Avatar, The Quest for Ewa. It doesn't specifically uh, state that they, these titles are the titles for the sequels, but because there are four titles and there are four upcoming Avatar sequels, it's easy to make the leap. But um, we'll take this with a grain of salt, or rather a healthy heaping of salt, because uh, it's possible that these titles could be in reference to potential Avatar video games, Avatar AR experiences, or they're possibly just um, placeholder titles for the films to use during production, which is a common practice for, especially for productions that have um, a high level of secrecy. So wait, so this BBC article doesn't say what these titles are for? No, it just says that it it's about the future of the Avatar franchise, and it's from this documentation from that they took got a peek of. Now, personally, I'm hoping that these titles are not the films. These sound like I don't know, sound like maybe <laughs> VR experiences or video games or something. Uh, Chris, what do you think about these titles? They're bad, uh, especially Avatar: The Seed Bearer, which I can't imagine like a big blockbuster movie with that title, but <laughs> you never know. You never, it might be real. I don't know. I, I feel like they're not real just because they don't sound real, but 
you know, stranger things have happened. And like uh, we know, Iwa is uh, the guiding force and deity of Pandora and the Navi. Uh, and the, the Navi believe that Iwa acts to keep the ecosystem of Pandora in a perfect equilibrium. So, what would be the journey to Iwa? A journey. The what is the title again? Quest for Iwa. The quest for Iwa. So I guess Iwa puts them on a quest to restore the equilibrium of the planet. That's... How exciting for a blockbuster. Yeah, I mean, we also do have Star Wars The Force Awakens, which is also an yeah. incredibly vague <laughs> uh, summation of what of also an all-encompassing force. So maybe it'll be similar to that. It's just, <laughs> I don't know. I also think that these titles are pretty lame, and the seed bearer is just, like, ripe huh, for... Um... <laughs> ripe for uh, some... Dirty jokes. Yeah, no. Everybody in our in our Slack channel was kind of going off on these titles, and I, I I did you know chime in. I did mention the Force Awakens because, you know, it, if we had just seen Star Wars: A New Hope, and you know, I came and told you, you know, thirty years from now, there's going to be, you know, the fourth film in the Star Wars saga is going to be called. Star Wars The Force Awakens. I, I think I would have made fun of that back then. I don't know. That sounds more real to me. Also, I'd be like, oh, my God, time traveler. Tell me more about the future. <laughs> but <I'd... laughs> I, I, I can only tell you about the fourth Star Wars film. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> yes, you should have warned us about who would win the election instead of yeah. telling us about the Star Wars title. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, no, I don't know. I, I mean, The Force Awakens sounds real to me, but maybe it just sounds real to me because it is real. So I don't know. Are either of you two excited for the Avatar sequels? Not particularly. I have maintained a level of apathy towards this franchise since I first saw it. And I am proud to say it has not changed since then. I'm actually kind of surprised that you did not enjoy this movie because like, it's so like, I feel like knowing you, HT, it's very kind of uh, a fairy tale it's almost like an anime in a way it's but also it just reminded me of how much better uh Hayao Miyazaki's Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind was and I was like oh they already not Hayao Miyazaki already did this multiple times and so I was just like just watch anime instead <laughs> so um I enjoyed the experience of it I thought it was really beautifully rendered technology but I just the story and the movie itself kind of fell flat for me I know the story is a little simplistic, but I don't know. I, I really liked Avatar uh, seeing it in 3D. I, I think the problem is it's not a movie you can really watch in 2D. It's, it's kind of made for the 3D. I, I've watched it. I have the 3D Blu-ray. I've watched it on my projector. It's actually probably, aside from Gravity, the only <laughs> Blu-ray I've watched multiple times uh, because it's just so breathtaking. And I don't know, guys. I, I just think... You can't, uh, you got to trust James Cameron when it comes to sequels. He has a great track record with sequels, right? That is very true. That is very true. I'm not betting against James Cameron by all means. I think that he is, uh, historically, um, he has been on the the right side of movie yeah. history, I guess you would say. So he's never had, not had a bad Sequel, terrible yeah. movie yet yeah, yeah bad sequel yet so um yeah I've, i'm sure these movies will be great and i'm sure once i i'll like be eating crow once i do see these films but for now i'm just not quite excited 
Chris, I do want to ask you, I, I know that you're not a fan of Avatar. Um, what do you think, like, happened in popular culture? Because, you know, this is the biggest grossing film of all time. The most amount of people that saw any film saw this movie. And I remember when it came out, people were enjoying this movie. And then there was, like, this big backlash. And it seemed like now, you know, everybody just likes to make fun of Avatar. Like, is, did the – what what happened? I don't know. I, I think, you know, I, I will say I don't hate Avatar. I just think it's kind of like if you strip away the special effects, there's really nothing to that movie. And I, I feel like it was such a huge hit because it was this like cultural moment where it was like, oh, you have to see Avatar. Everyone has to see Avatar because at the time, 3D movies weren't as uh prevalent as they be they became like you know not that yeah. 3d was like invented by avatar 3d has been around for years but avatar like brought it back it, it updated the technology and that was like how the, the movie was hyped like oh it's it's 3d like you've never seen it before and so everyone was like i guess i gotta see that and it kicked off this whole new trend where every hollywood movie every blockbuster at least was you know oh yeah. we gotta convert this to 3d now so i feel like it's, Hollywood taking the, the the wrong lessons again. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and I you know so I feel like at the time it was this cultural shift, but I also feel like a lot of people realized after seeing the movie that it's kind of forgettable. Like uh, you know I don't I don't think it's a bad movie, but I saw the movie in theaters and uh, you know I don't really remember anything about it. I remember like one scene where they're standing and there are like fire embers. Cause I remember that looked really cool in 3d and that's it. I don't remember like anything else. So I, I think the movie is kind of forgettable. And I think that's what's inspired this, this backlash that, you know, it got really hyped up. Everyone saw it. And now everyone realizes it's not what it was cracked up to be. Not everyone. There are people of color, of course, yeah. who still like it. It just seems like those people are not vocal. <laughs> so it's like I don't know, it seems like they are non-existent, which is strange. Anyways, let's talk about another sequel that probably shouldn't be happening, and that is Inside Man Two. We have some casting news for this, and uh, even some info on what this could be. Chris, tell us about it. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, so Emil Amin, who has appeared in Sense Eight, and he was in The Maze Runner, has been cast as the lead in Inside Man Two. And Inside Man, of course, was a 2000 film from Spike Lee. It had Denzel Washington in it and Clive Owen and Jodie Foster. And it was it's really good. It's a, it's a clever, twisty bank robbery film. And it's also uh, Spike Lee's highest grossing film. It was a huge hit for him. Uh, this sequel, it sounds less like a sequel and more like a, a remake because none of the characters from the, the first movie are in it. And the plot is more or less the same. It's about a hostage negotiator who's dealing with a bank robbery, which is what the first movie was about. So it sounds like they're just taking the Inside Man brand, if you could call it that, if this movie even has a brand, <laughs> and slapping it onto you know a bank robbery story. And it's interesting because back in 2006, Spike Lee actually said he was going to make a sequel to this, to the first film. And the original cast was coming back. The screenwriter was coming back. It was going to be a direct sequel. And he couldn't get it funded. Even though Inside Man, the first one was a huge hit, he couldn't get the funding for it. And he gave up on the idea. And now, you know, years later, it is happening without his involvement. And <laughs> we're getting this, which, you know, this sort of soft reboot. So it's, it's, 
it's kind of depressing that Spike Lee, who is a great filmmaker, couldn't get his idea made, and instead they're just making this, whatever this is. I know that we're oftentimes cynical about what Hollywood is producing, all these uh, you know, remakes, adaptations, sequels. And I do see a a need for us as a culture, you know, as us as beings, like telling the same stories over and over again that kind of uh you know, are, are touchstones for us, like, you know, like Shakespeare. And, you know, I think that's what we're doing with some of these movie remakes. But that said, is is anybody really aching for an Inside Man reboot? I, I can't imagine it because, you know, Inside Man, uh, I won't give away spoilers if someone hasn't seen this 18-year-old film. But, you know, Inside Man was was jumping off of already established tropes. Cause you know, I mean, dog yeah. day afternoon is a famous bank robbery hostage movie, but what made that what made inside man really clever is that it took an established thing and twisted it into something else. And of course, Spike Lee's direction was really good. And to do the same thing, but with not, you know, without the same cast, without Spike Lee, it just, it's like, what's the point? Why are you doing this? And, I, I guess it is just that brand thing. I guess it's just safer to produce something yeah. that's an established title than just try something new, unfortunately. And and now a bit of news to hit last night, and that is that they are making another adaptation of H.G. Wells' classic, The Time Machine, uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio producing and from the director of It, H.G., what do we know? Yeah, soon after Andy Muschietti was announced to be in talks to develop a Attack on Titan movie, he has signed on for yet another project. Uh, he is set to direct a new adaptation of The Time Machine with Leonardo DiCaprio on board as producer. Um, he, uh, DiCaprio and Jennifer Davidson have um, are producing um, with uh, DiCaprio's Appian Way Productions. And um, Arnold Leibovitz, who executive produced the 2002 movie, uh, will remain on board as executive producer. So it sounds like Andy Muschietti is following Guillermo del Toro on attaching himself to as many projects as possible. And uh, most of them probably won't be made. Right. Yeah, that sounds like he's uh, living up to his mentor's sort of legacy of just signing on to as many things as possible now that he's kind of a rising talent and has a lot of excitement around him and uh, getting us excited in the process. So uh, we'll see if this actually uh, goes through. Yeah, I... I you know, my favorite movie of all time is Back to the Future. As a kid, I was actually even as an adult, I'm obsessed with time travel, and uh, so I loved H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. I I used to read that book, and I used to watch the original movie. There was one that came out what in the 2000s at some point. Yeah, that's... the 2002 Time Machine with Guy Pierce. Yeah, that one yeah. is not so good. Even though the the the, the, the older older one is probably bad in its own ways i kind of enjoyed the guy pierce one yeah, actually yeah. although i i went in without knowing about the book at all that was um i it was my introduction to the story and it kind of changed the more basic plot elements of the original novella but it kind of yeah. it was a fun action adventure and um it was i i still enjoy it in still kind good. of like a campy way chris what is your relationship with the time machine 
Uh, I really like that movie Time After Time in which H.G. Wells <laughs> and Jack the Ripper come to mo- modern day America and they have to fight each other. It's a really cool movie. It's got uh, it is. Malcolm McDowell in it and uh, David Warner. And yeah, that movie posits that H.G. Wells didn't just write the time machine. He built his own time machine that really worked. And as bad luck would have it, Jack the Ripper stole it and rode it into the future and he had to come after him. So I really like that movie. Uh, beyond that, I don't have much of an attachment with the story. Wasn't there also a movie that featured the time machine in the background of a scene and it like disappears as like an Easter egg? I think I remember know. this. I don't know about that one. No. And I found it. Uh, so there is a scene in Steven Spielberg's Gremlins where uh, oh. the father is at this like convention for, uh, I guess, inventions. <laughs> And uh, th- you see the time machine in the background. And he's talking to his son, and uh, when it when it cuts back, the time machine has been, it, you know, has disappeared. So oh, I never I never noticed. I have to look for that when I rewatch Gremlins during Christmas time. That's funny. I, I will put a link in the show notes to that. Um, but anyways, uh, I'm I'm interested in this, but uh, I I don't necessarily think it's ever going to get made. So. Who knows? Uh, but speaking of sequels that we never thought would ever get made, uh, Ridley Scott is apparently set to direct Gladiator 2. Yes. <laughs> um, Ridley Scott apparently just loves coming back to his older films. He, you know, he did it with Alien. Now he's doing it with Gladiator. Uh, Ridley Scott has been trying to make a Gladiator sequel almost since the original film came out, which was in 2000. And uh, at one point, he commissioned this absolutely crazy screenplay by Nick Cave that I really wish had been made, where uh, Maximus, the Russell Crowe character, goes to hell, and then he comes back to Earth, and there's all this supernatural stuff in it. It's, it's this really weird and crazy script that you know Hollywood obviously never would have made, but I wish they had. And obviously, that's not happening, but now just uh, another sequel is happening that focuses on the character of... Um, Lucius, who's the the nephew of Joaquin Phoenix's character in the first film, but he's grown up now, and I guess he's leading Rome. There's not a lot of detail about it, but we just know that Ridley Scott is finally making this happen in some capacity, and it's 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 happening for some reason. Does anybody here care about this one? If they were doing the the Nick Cave one, I'd be very excited, but they're not doing that, so no. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, I really liked the original Gladiator. I thought it was I had an astounding performance from both Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix. And um, I don't know why a sequel is happening. I think the IP wars are in full effect now in which, yeah, like you were saying before, Peter, it's just executives are just jumping on every recognizable title or even less recognizable titles to make a remake of it because it's a safe bet. The only baffling thing here is that Ridley Scott is back to do it, but he just seems like a workhorse. So maybe he's just someone told, asked him if he wanted to do a gladiator sequel. And he's like, yeah, sure. Why not? (laughs) And uh, we we were talking about the time machine before. Let's go on to another time traveler. That being uh, Dr. Who your beloved Dr. Who HD. Uh, uh, But it turns out that there, the Christmas special for Dr. Who has been scrapped for the first time in 13 years. 
Yeah. Since the 2005 revival, Doctor Who has been kind of a holiday staple. Uh, Every year it has a Christmas special that it airs basically on December 25th, almost every year. And it's usually a Christmas theme story and or a big blockbuster style event episode in which the BBC just pours tons of money into it and suddenly the show looks amazing. Um, Not that it doesn't look great now. Well, it it looks okay now. (laughs) So wait, why Um, are they not doing it this year? uh, Well, this is based off of a report from the mirror who said that reports that doctor who writers have quote run out of christmas stories to give a sci-fi twist for and this is kind of an issue that's been going back since uh stephen moffat's run astro runner uh, a few for his last uh christmas special uh, twice upon a time last year he kind of admitted that i think we have sort of mined and possibly overmined every single story about christmas in doctor who and uh even in the last special they didn't really do a christmas story it's just set in the winter with snow and then has like a last minute christmas twist but um it seems that uh chris chibnall the current showrunner has suggested that there will not be a Christmas special, but another special after the, se- the season ends its 10-episode um, runtime this year. So he said at Comic-Con this year, actually, um, quote, I would definitely think there's another episode after the end of the series. So he tr- av- carefully avoids saying Christmas special, but it's, uh, according to the mirror, it could possibly be a New Year's Day special, mm. um, which is kind of something that, Doctor Who was also sort of done before uh, in a two-parter episode that was a Christmas special but ended up running into the new year of, uh, during David Tennant's run. So uh, I'm a little sad because I really look forward to do- the Doctor Who Christmas specials every year. They're a little hokey. They're a little fun. And they often do a little twist off of a familiar Christmas story. One of my favorite Christmas episodes ever, actually, is um, Doctor Who A Christmas Carol, which stars uh, Michael Gambon in the uh, guest role as sort of an Ebenezer Scrooge type character, except it's in space. So that's even better. And oh, wow. um, it's a really it's a great episode, actually. I, I recommend it. It's a good time travel and a, um, emotionally um, heartfelt uh, episode. So uh, that they're they're always fun and they're always kind of a staple, but it's not it's, and it's kind of a loss that this won't be happening this year because I would love to see Jodie Whittaker do a Christmas-themed episode. But um, if we still get another special episode after the season finishes airing, I wouldn't be mad about that. I also think it's funny that, like, you know, usually we see these stories from the mirror and we're like, ah, oh, that's probably bullshit. But if it's Doctor Who, it must be true. Because um, exactly. the mirror is, yeah. Uh, has Doctor Who ever encountered Santa Claus? Yes, he has. Really? In the 2016 special, he was played by, oh, I'm totally just blanking on his name. Was it Nick um, Frost? Nick Frost. Yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but he was played by Nick Frost, and um, it was kind of a sort of dream episode, but it was uh, it was fun. <laughs> yeah, he he met Santa Claus, and um, it was a it was a rollicking good time. Okay, then I, I think they have officially run out of ideas for Christmas specials. <laughs> uh, let's move on to our last story, and that is uh, the story of a Penny Dreadful, a Penny Dreadful, uh, I guess, spinoff show? Is that right, Chris? It's like a spinoff slash sequel, I guess you could call it. Yeah, t- tell us about this. 
Uh, yeah, so this series, it's called Penny Dreadful City of Angels, and John Logan, who was the creator and writer of the original Penny Dreadful, is back doing this one, too. And uh, other than the title and the showrunner, it sounds like it's going to be a, a much different show. The original show, of course, was set in Victorian London, and this is going to be set in 1930s uh, Los Angeles, and it's going to deal with, you know, different sort of occult elements and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I'm I'm hesitantly happy about this because I loved the original Petty Dreadful. But what I loved about it was that gothic Victorian setting. And I loved the cast, especially Eva Green. So if you're doing a new show without any of that stuff, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about it. But I am happy that the show is back in some capacity. So we don't really know what the hook is for this season? Uh, well, th- this season is going to deal with Mexican-American folklore, which is, is kind of cool because, the, you know, there aren't a lot of shows about that. And, you know, so I'm sure there's a lot you can do with that. And it's going to, you know, blend a historical background with the, the supernatural story it's telling. But again, I'm I'm just I just wish it were the original series just because I love that. that mood it was it was uh it was setting up but i don't know maybe they'll find a way to tie it into the original series because it it it, it, would seem weird to call it penny dreadful if it's not gonna have any connection at all but it sounds like it's not at at this time yeah that that is weird although the 1930s los angeles setting is intriguing to me i always like that kind of uh i mean that's kind of the error that uh la noir the the video game kind of uh tackled so i uh, i'm I don't know. I'm kind of interested in that because also, you know, that's like when Hollywood was kind of uh, boom beginning, uh, you know, the Hollywood boom was happening. So, yeah, it, it's like a James Elroy thing. It's like L.A. Confidential, but with horror, which could be pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, OK, we're going to move on to our next segment, which is Advice Corner. It's Chris's And yes, we actually have a theme song uh, created by Love You Wally. So Love You Wally did that theme song. Chris, how does it feel to have a theme song? It's uh, it's a little mind blowing. Thank you, Love You Wally, whoever you are. That was a uh, <laughs> no one has ever written a theme song about me before. So it's pretty impressive. And I think that was uh, inspired by the Adventures of Pete and Pete theme song. It sounds like it does sound like it. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, let's get to our letter for this week, and that this is from Your Ball, uh, who lives in Bay Area of California, and he writes in. I'll include the full letter in the show notes, but I'm just going to read the relevant part. That he uh, is an immigrant from a country with a much more relaxed age rating uh, rating system, and he grew up watching hard R and even NC-17 rated movies such as. Shocking Asia at age 12. Hollywood R-rated movies were acceptable in our household with no problems. After coming to the U.S., I've encouraged, uh, I've encountered this new-to-me system of age restriction and parental uh, control. To me, at the time, it didn't seem to make much sense, and I saw it as a dumb thing. However, time went by, and I am a father now. Although my child is not yet old enough to watch movies 
I have drastically changed my views towards parental control and movie age ratings. I am definitely not going to show my son a Tinto Brass film at age 10, but I also don't want to be so strict that not watching some R-rated films at a young age can turn him into a fragile scaredy cat. Uh, where does Chris stand on the subject and how should I proceed with my dilemma? Should I censor the media for my kid and let him decide later in life if he likes that type of entertainment? Or should I take my own experience as an example and allow him to watch whatever interests him within moral boundaries, of course? So, Chris, what what do you think about this? Like, I, I, you aren't a parent yourself, right? No. Heavens no. The so, only children he needs are his two dogs. That's right. Those are my kids. Yeah. And, I, and I feel like after our first entry where, where we basically advise someone not to go to college, we should probably create like a like a disclaimer at the end of this. Like one of those like fast talking disclaimers like slash home does not blah, 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 blah. Like <laughs> – <laughs> what what Chris says is, you know, uh, take it with a grain of salt. But okay, Chris, yes, make it. This is just advice. This isn't uh, set in stone. This is you have to make your own decisions. Um, I would say it depends on your child. Really, you, you only you would know your child and what he, uh, you know, can handle. You know, some children are more sensitive than others. Some can't take uh, certain things and that's fine um when i was growing up my parents didn't stop me from r-rated movies unless they had sex in them that was that was where they drew the line they were fine with like super violent horror movies but if there was sex that was a big no-no like i i really wanted to see uh francis ford coppola's bram stoker's dracula in theaters because i was a huge dracula fan but that movie has a lot of sexual situations in it. So my parents forbade me from seeing it for a few years until it came out on VHS. And that really bothered me. And I still resent them for it. So, but you turned out to be a well-adjusted human being. I, I, I wouldn't go that far. No, uh, yeah, I really think it boils down to your, your son. I believe he said it was his son. Yeah. And yeah. what he what he can handle. I would say, you know, talk to him about it and, you know, be honest. That's what I think is important. Just be honest with your kid and be like, you know, this movie has this and this and this in it. Do you think you can handle it? And, you know, there's always a chance the kid's going to lie and be like, yeah, I can handle that. And they watch it and they're scarred for life. But they'll 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 learn a valuable lesson that way they'll they'll realize i should never watch this kind of movie again because now i am traumatized so that's my advice traumatize your children and they'll grow up to thank you for it um but you you, you never know what a kid is going to get uh scared at or what's it's Like, yeah, I remember, it, like, you know, my, my parents kept me away from, like, violence and sex in movies. But then I, I remember seeing uh, the Masters of the Universe movie, like the bad one with uh, – who was uh... – Dolph Lundgren? <laughs> yes. And, uh, and uh, um, Skeletor haunted my dreams. And that's not even, like, that bad. Like, you know, I, yeah. I I was not bothered by the movies that I saw that had blood or, like, you know, really disturbing things. I was, I was you know, scared of this guy and this skull makeup. 
It's true. I mean, one of the, the things that most scared me as a kid is a scene in one of the two Pee Wee Herman movies. I can't remember which one it is, but it's where he gets picked up by Large Marge, which is... That's like the first this, one. That's the Tim She's this ghostly trucker, and her face turns all creepy, and that scared the shit out of me. And that's a movie for, like for kids. It's not supposed to be a traumatizing movie, but I remember that just terrified me as a kid. So really, you know, even if you think you're you're uh shading your your children from something that is advertised as scary you never know like there's always going to be something that scares them in some way it's best to you know i i think it's important to show kids this sort of stuff and you know teach them that it's not real like i think that's a thing that a lot of people don't get like you know <laughs> the stuff in the movies isn't really happening and if if you can separate the two you'll be fine I'd like to give a little input, too. Um, I have two little cousins who I used to babysit. They're about 12 and 6 years old. And my aunt and uncle, they have a... a and they, they know all about Doctor Who and Miyazaki. <laughs> no, but um, I have made them watch a few Young Justice like and the Flash episodes. So uh, And Buffy. Oh, my gosh. I watched with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, of course, with the older uh, the, the girl. So that was where we bonded. But... Um, her, their parents tended to um, to screen movies for them before they watch it and make the decision from there because I do think that the MPA system, the Hollywood um, R, like rating system, is a little bit arbitrary sometimes when it comes to R ratings. Like you know, you can't say the word "fuck" more than once in an R rated movie in a movie, and, and that makes it go rated R. So I think it makes sense for parents to screen them and like see what they think uh, is best for kids. Um, and, and there's a ton of websites out there that you can look up a film and it will tell you everything from what swear words are said, you know, what sexual situations, what kind of violence, uh, even even if there's any animals that, yeah. you know, are killed on screen. Yeah, exactly. And um, for them, it's like I think for them, violence is actually the one that's more kind of a um, they take a hard stance on because American movies tend to uh, as opposed to other like European movies, for example, go in harder for the violence versus the more sexual scenes in uh, other international films. So for them, sometimes even they will like walk a line like for Hunger Games which my cousin was a really big fan of they were a little bit reluctant to let them show it but then they decided to anyways so it depends and I also agree with Chris in terms of just like exposing them to more movies um, younger and not trying to like you know helicopter them so much when it comes to anything that's a little bit scary because it's not not good either to just like censor them too much when they're young because it deprives them a lot of like being able to critically watch movies and distinguish reality from from fiction which is a might be a problem too with like even media literacy today <laughs> in the news i'm turning into a political thing of course but yes no it's true there there are adults who don't know how to do this right today yeah. so it, it, teach them young before they grow up to be the people who make cinema sins videos. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, HG reminds me that when I was younger, I used to babysit my two nieces and I would show them movies that they weren't supposed to watch, like Jurassic Park and Independence Day. And I would fast forward through the scary parts and I thought that was okay. And then later on, I would get yelled at by my sister who, because they were having nightmares about aliens and, <laughs> and dinosaurs. So, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> if you're living in the same house, 
<laughs> you should probably make decisions that won't keep you up at night because of the nightmares. <laughs> okay, that's, that's probably wrong. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't know. I, I, I pretty much agree with Crest here. I think um, you, you yeah, just I gotta think... kind of like figure it out. You gotta figure like you know you eventually have to show them a scary movie of some kind, maybe like you know something like Amblin esque, like Gremlins or something. You know, E. T. You know, E. T. has some disturbing moments, and I think you'll get an indication from that if they're having nightmares or oh my god et is terrible that scene yeah. where he dies is <laughs> yeah. so upsetting he's all like white it's awful it's horrifying it is and yeah. there's a lot of cursing in that movie too more than you would expect for what's a pg-rated children's film yeah you get a lot of you can get away with a lot more back then back in the old days <laughs> so i'm just wondering chris would you show a 10 year old uh the raid Ah, oh, man, I don't know. I maybe it it depends, the because the raid is so, the violence is so like cartoonish that I feel like it's not as bad. Like I wouldn't show a ten year old like I, I would I would I wouldn't show the ten year old the raid. I'll tell you why. Okay. Subtitles. Oh yes, <laughs> they don't want to read. Well, there's you can show them the dub the to read that fast. I mean, maybe I'm being mean to ten year olds. I'm sure yeah. they can read very fast. No, they're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Kids don't want to watch subtitles. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, it yeah. I, I think it's too. That'd be fine, but if it was like, I wouldn't show them like Cannibal Holocaust or something like that. Something where the, where the violence is a lot more realistic and a lot more brutal. Because the the raid to me, even though it's like wall to wall violence, none of it seems real. Like everyone's defying gravity in that movie. So I feel like you could separate the reality from the fiction yeah. from that. Yeah, I, I think for me, language isn't a problem. Uh, sexual situations would probably be an issue. I guess I would be most like your parents. And I, I would be – I wouldn't really care about violence as long as the kids could understand that it's not real. I don't know. I guess that's like the, the – the, the, that's typical, right? Like that's like the it's, like it's Americans very, like, are very like let's not yeah. show them sex, but violence is okay. <laughs> that's like our our puritanical roots, where sex is forbidden, but everything else is. Fine. I was gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, I'm sure there's tons of parents out there listening to this who are uh, up in arms. <laughs> yes. They're ready to write a, write us emails over our bad parenting advice. Um, but, uh, yeah, and you can do that at peter at slash film.com. You can also, uh, submit your letter. If you, if you want some life advice from Chris, you can send it to that email as well. That's peter at slash film.com. And please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention the letter on the air. Uh, Chris, where can we find more of your work online? Uh, I'm at slash film.com every day and I'm on Twitter at C evangelist of 413. HJ, where can we find you? You can also find me at SlashFilm.com every day, and I'm on Twitter at HTranBooey. You can find all the stories we've talked about today in the show notes and on SlashFilm.com. I'll also link to that uh, Time Machine appearing in Gremlins clip. Uh, SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Uh Send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please go to our iTunes page. Give us a five-star rating, a glowing review, and uh, tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you on Monday.
Do you no, think I think are, no, I think they gave some very even-handed advice. Yeah, I think it was fine. We didn't say anything bad. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what horror movies do you think would be okay to show a nine-year-old? Oh my god, I don't even know. I can't even remember like what I was like when I was nine. I don't know. Like, <laughs> you could show them like the Monster Squad. I would say that's fine because like that's kind of adult because it has like cursing in it, but it's it's also clearly made for younger audiences. So that would be fine. Maybe like <sighs> Scream. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Scream really? That has like knife like going through people and yeah, very bloody. Kids these days are tough. They gotta, they have to be tough for this hard world. Horrible world. Yeah, they can take it. 